appreciated that story, Jennifer. I was thinking about those shark's teeth in southwest South Dakota and eastern Wyoming. They have shark's teeth all over the ground in some places. You can find them. One Sabbath afternoon, several of us were up by a railroad uh, bed. We were picking up. We were looking for shark's teeth. We found them. And I remember asking my friend, Dr. Chuck Franklin, I said, what kind of sharks do you think these were from? He said, high desert sharks. <laughs> so anyway, I digress, and I haven't even started. We're, we're in a strange world a very strange world where it seems like the whole world goes according to the emotions of the time. So much of politics today seems based on emotion, certainly not on logic. And so much of our world whether it's family relations, governments, uh, the things that, the policies that are put into place, so much of it seems to be based on just pure emotion. And one, in fact, logic is often turned upside down. It's, it's just, I don't know, maybe you've thought like I have, that we're in a crazy world. I think it's interesting to see how things work when we follow God's principles. And there is a book in your Bible, and it's in mine, that's a story, the whole book. It's only four chapters, and it's about... A family where things may have started out on the basis of emotion, but they turned into uh, behaving on principle. And it's, it's fascinating to me to, to look at it because it's so different in some ways from today's world, and yet the people were so much like us in so many ways. It's found in the book of Ruth. Comes right after 2 Samuel. Been a lot of discussion about who wrote this beautiful story. I thought it was King David himself, but uh, nobody seems to think that but me. Probably they think it was Samuel himself wrote it. It all starts with a man, a husband, and his wife, Naomi. Elimelech was the husband, Naomi the wife. And they had two sons, Malon and Chilion. And if you're into biblical names, we like biblical names in our home, but I don't think we ever thought of naming either of our children 
after any of these, except Naomi is still used today. Uh, Ruth, interestingly, does not have a Hebrew name. Can you guess why? She wasn't Hebrew. She was Moabitess. And she doesn't come into the story until we get into it a little ways. It all starts with dad and mom and two sons, and apparently they were farmers and things weren't going well. They had a dry spell. The Bible says they had a famine. That's a bad dry spell. And so they... uh, were trying to decide what to do, and they heard that over in Moab, they had uh, food. Apparently, Moab was getting enough rain that they were able... And by the way, Moab today, there is no country called Moab. Today, we call it Jordan. And the Moabites don't seem to be around. But uh, the people of Jordan have that land, and it is today what it, well, to some degree, what it was then. It's a good land for sheep and cattle and that kind of thing. Back then, it was also good for uh, dry land farming. And they grew quite a bit of, you know, there, there there was food available. It was being grown in Moab. And so they decided to go over to Moab. Now, whether that was a wise decision or not, uh, I have often wondered why the people of God would go to Moab. It was a place where we know during the time of, well, from the book of Numbers, that when the children of Israel came through there, Balak, the king of Moab, had uh, been very frightened at the coming of the Israelites, even though they did not threaten him, he didn't trust them. And so, you know the story, he hired Balaam to come and curse them so that if they could be cursed, uh, then he could make war against them and win. Well, it didn't work. And that's a whole other story. But uh, the two countries were never really close friends, but uh, Elimelech and Naomi and Malan and Chilion, all headed for Moab because probably they were hungry and they got to Moab. And the young men, of course, were interested in finding wives. And what do you find in the country of Moab? Moabites, right? And so they married Moabite young women, Ruth, and Orpah. And again, that probably wasn't the originally good idea, but they did. And then things went sour for them in Moab. The Bible tells us that uh, the three men of the family all died. Elimelech died. Uh, Malan died, Chilion died, and that left the three women together, mother-in-law and daughters-in-law. And again, we're in a strange time when 
Well, I grew up hearing mother-in-law jokes. You ever hear any of those? Uh, in the biblical culture, mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law were expected to be very close. And Naomi, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law were close. And Naomi had been there about 10 years. Now she had two daughters-in-law, and she thought it might be better to go back to her people. And she heard that there was bread, as, as it puts it in the Bible, there was bread back home. And so off they went to Bethlehem. And you know the story. They come to the borders of Moab. And Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and says, Look, I can't do anything for you. I can't produce any more sons for you. You need to go back to your people. You're still young. Go back. And they say, Oh, no, we don't want to do that. And she urges them. And finally, Orpah goes back. And, and Ruth has that famous saying, and I, I want to point out that this is probably one, one of the high points of this book. It is a, a book with several real high points in it. And she says, by the way, this was sung at our wedding, wasn't it, dear? Uh, the, these words, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, this is what, what they sing, wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God, where you uh, die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Now, this is a presentation of love that we don't hear much in the modern world. This is not emotion. This is principle. I'm going where you go. Your God will be mine. Where you die, I will die. This is total, this is total uh, commitment. I'm going to take care of you. And she was. I mean, this is something so pure and unselfish. And uh, it, it just, it touches my heart. Actually, there are two stories in the Old Testament that just can bring tears to my eyes every time I read them. Um, one is Joseph and his brothers, and this is the other one. Because when one young lady makes the decision that she is going to do the right thing no matter what. God is in a position to work mightily on her behalf as well as on behalf of her mother-in-law. Now they get to Bethlehem, and it's interesting because in Bethlehem, well, it's a small town. It's still not huge. It's about five or six miles south east, I think, of Jerusalem. And, uh, I mean, we all know about Bethlehem. Every Christmas we hear about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. We have wise men and shepherds and all, you know that. 
But back then, it was just a little farming community. And it's about, it's over 3,000 feet above sea level. It's, um, it's a place, maybe I got that wrong, but it's, it's well above sea level. And it's, it over, you know, it, it's a place where it's been agricultural for millennia. And they get back, and like small towns everywhere, people were talking. They're a little hard up for news. Hey, have you heard? Have you heard? Naomi is back. Naomi's here. Wow. And the whole town is a flutter over it because that's the biggest thing that's happened since Naomi left with her husband. And, of course, the story has changed. Now she's back without her husband, without her sons, you ever wondered why they all died so close together? I've wondered if maybe there was a little bit of COVID going through the country or something, maybe the flu. Uh, but they all died. The men all died, and the three ladies lived. Anyway, they uh, they're back in Bethlehem, and they found a house to live in. Maybe it was Naomi's old house. I don't know. Doesn't say. But. Ruth is determined to do something to support them. Now, you got to remember, these were times when women didn't work outside the home. I'm not making this up. It was, in fact, in parts of the world, that's the way it still is. When a woman loses her husband, becomes a widow if she's fairly young, she often doesn't have any way to make a living. Women can get into very bad lifestyles because there's nothing else they can do. And we heard the story last weekend at the faith camp. They were talking about this one woman in India who had that happen. She was a widow, and when the Jesus Frasia people came, they, they not only led her to Jesus, but they taught her how to sew, and they bought her a little sewing machine. She set up her own tailor business, and her house, which was considered a place that good people stayed away from, has now become a place where the whole village looks up to her because she's the village tailor, and she has been able to support herself, and she also encourages other women and leads them to Jesus read scriptural promises to them. I, I heard that, and I, yes, go for it. Jesus can make a difference in people's lives. And in this case, uh, Naomi wasn't by herself. She had her widowed daughter-in-law with her. And immediately, well, you've got to remember, they had in the Hebrew system a plan to help people in Naomi's and Ruth's condition. When they had a, when they had a um, harvest, they were told not to harvest, not, not to pick the vines clean, for instance, if, if it's a grape harvest. 
I don't know if you've ever picked grapes. My uncle had 25 acres of grapes, and I remember picking grapes. And uh, you can miss some of them that are hidden back in the leaves. So after you've done a vine, you go back through and you look under all the leaves and try to get it picked clean. They were not to do that. They were to leave. They were just to go over the vine and leave all those hard-to-find ones there for people like Ruth to come and get the extra grapes that were left. And if it was... If they were harvesting grain, they were not to harvest the corners of the field. They were not to, if they dropped a little, they weren't supposed to go back and get it because there were people like Ruth who needed food. And, of course, they had to work to get it, but it was there for them. And that was a good plan. Nobody was just going down and picking up a check. They were expected to get out and work, but it was there for them. I think that's a pretty good plan. God just comes up with such good ideas, doesn't he? Uh, and so Ruth goes out to, it's barley harvest, and she goes out to pick up grain. And she ends up in a field that belongs to a relative of Naomi's husband. And he's a man of great wealth. Actually, the Bible says that mentions one of I think it was his grandfather was actually a leader in the tribe of Judah. So it was a family of nobility in the tribe of Judah. And uh, he was a fairly wealthy man and closely related to Elimelech. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in the... Uh, in whose sight I may find favor. And, of course, she found favor in Boaz's sight. By the way, we don't generally... I, I knew someone who named their kid Boaz. He resented it all his life. Uh, some names just aren't that popular. But uh, the reason he did it, you know, when Solomon built his temple, he put two big pillars, one in front of each of the... Um, one each in front of the temple, and the one on the left was called Boaz. They named those pillars. And this guy wanted his son to be a pillar in the house of God. So anyway, uh, it's interesting we use some of those names today. Yeah, like I said, Naomi is still one that's around. Anyway, uh, she went out and went gleaning in the field of Boaz. And Boaz comes out after a while, and his workers are out there working. Who's the young woman out there? She's a stranger. Oh, that's Ruth the Moabitess. Oh, yeah, I've heard about her. Sure, the whole town was talking about her. Uh, she'd come back taking care of her mother-in-law. And everybody thought she was, even though she was a Moabitess, she's still a pretty good young lady. And so he's... He gives them directions. He says, uh, drop a little extra grain for her to pick up. And when it's time for everybody to eat, they're sitting there, and uh, he invites her over. He says, we all have heard how good you are to your mother-in-law. Uh, please join us for lunch. And they shared the lunch with her. And 
he told her she was welcome to dip her bread in the vinegar that everybody was doing. And uh, that doesn't sound that good to me. But anyway, they, that's, their, their diet was different. A lot of things about their culture was different. But remember, cultures change, but emotions and people are still emotions and people. You understand that. And so when she goes home that night, you know, she beats out her grain, takes it home. Naomi says, uh, you've done pretty good. Whose field were you in today? And she says, oh, a man named Boaz. Oh, he's a near, near of kin. Keep it up. Don't be seen in anybody else's field. In fact, he had given his workers special directions. Don't you dare touch her. Be good to that young lady. She's a good woman. And so everybody was looking out for her there. Now, the fun really begins, uh, Naomi says he is a near of kin, and God also had a plan for young widows. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Um, if, well, maybe we ought to look at it. it, the way they word it in the Bible is kind of interesting, it, it kind of hits you between the eyes. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25 starts in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that the name may not be blotted out of Israel. That was very important. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother use, uh, refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel, he will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elder of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands uh, firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. His name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Boy, that's pretty brutal. Uh, <laughs> that, that would ruin the man's reputation big time. And th this was the plan that God had in place. And it seems to have been a custom in the Middle East. We find in Genesis that it was in, in place during the time of uh, Jacob's sons, Judah, and so forth. So uh, anyway, and, and it, if the, there wasn't a brother, it would be the nearest of kin. Anyway, at the end of the harvest, they have this big pile of grain, and Naomi takes her daughter-in-law, says, look, 
got to give you some advice here. Naomi knows her people. She knows her culture. She knows what goes and what doesn't. And she says, tonight, I want you to go down to the threshing floor. And I want you to look, just kind of stay out of sight in the background, and I want you to pay attention to Boaz. And when he has, they're going to have a party because the threshing will all be over. They've had a great harvest. You go down there, and you, when he has had enough of the party, and he goes and lies down, pay attention to where, and go lie at his feet. Now we're getting into something that is totally out of our culture. It's not immoral, but it sure is different. And uh, if he wakes up and wants to know what you're doing there, you just tell him to cover you. And because he's the next of kin. You follow what's happening here? And so she does that. And he wakes up with a start in the middle of the night. Somebody's at his feet. Who is that? I'm Ruth, and you're my next of kin. Would you cover me? Well, he says, go back to sleep in the morning. I'll, I'll take care of things. And he did. He gives her six bushels of grain. I've wondered how she hauled. She must have been a strong lady. Well, it says six ephahs. I'm not sure. An ephah is quite a bit of grain. And she carries it in her garment back. And he says, there's another, there's another relative that's closer than me. And so she goes home. And, of course, she's got enough grain to last her and Naomi for a long time. And she tells Naomi what happened. And Naomi says, well, the man will not rest until he's taken care of that today. She knew men. And sure enough, he waits by the city gate, gets some of the men together, because that's where all the decisions are made of a legal, all the decisions of a legal nature. And when the relative near, who's nearer than he is comes by, he says, Come over here and have a seat. He said, uh, our brother Elimelech left a field and it needs to be redeemed by the nearest of kin. You're nearest, I'm after you. Will you redeem it or not? I'll redeem it. He says, uh, you need to know that when you redeem that field, with it comes our brother Malon's wife, Ruth, to raise up uh, posterity for Malon. And the guy says, whoops, can't do it. I mess up my own inheritance. Uh, thanks for offering, but can't do it. And so this is where the scripture gets very interesting. Boaz, remember what we just read in Deuteronomy. The close relative said in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything one man 
took off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Well, things had, had mellowed out some since Deuteronomy was written, but <laughs> they still took off the sandal, and, and they, they uh, made this, this uh, agreement, and now we see Boaz said to the elders, verse 9, and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren, and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. This is the little ceremony here. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now, there's, there's some real issues here that you need to understand. First of all, Ruth is not a Hebrew. And by the way, Boaz's mother was not a Hebrew. Did you know that? His mother was Rahab. <laughs> she was... She was the ones, she and her family were the only survivors of Jericho. So it probably didn't bother Boaz as much as it might have some of the Hebrews to be marrying someone who was not a Hebrew. And now his wife, like his mother, has become by adoption a Hebrew. She has been taken into the family. Her God is, Naomi's God is Ruth's God. Her people, Naomi's people, are Ruth's people. Now we have a little, we, we have some very interesting things here because we, it tells us about how she bore Obed. Who bore Jesse? Who bore David? You've heard of him. I mean, this young man, or this old man, by the way, you know, he, he said of Ruth when he woke up that night and she was at his feet, he said, blessed are you for not going after the young man, men. So he apparently was quite a bit older at the time. What is fascinating to me is this whole system of the Redeemer. He had redeemed Ruth, took on her mother-in-law in the process, and was glad to do it. And God blessed greatly. And we find this in the New Testament, a term that is used for Jesus. He is our Redeemer. After all, our first father and mother got into trouble. 
they could not bequeath to us eternal life because they didn't have it. They gave it up. They were tricked. They were, well, they followed their emotions. We talked about that in Sabbath school. And so the whole human race was left without our inheritance. We got cheated out of that too. And along comes a redeemer. Did you know that Jesus is called, first of all, in Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26? Have you ever heard that? I know that my redeemer liveth, and he shall appear. I shall see him in my flesh. That is, even though my flesh has been turned to worms. Job was looking forward to the resurrection and the coming of Jesus. And he knew that he had a redeemer. And when Jesus went to the cross, he paid the price. I, I looked some things up. I didn't have room to write them all. For instance, Isaiah follows this theme of a redeemer who will die for our sins. Isaiah 53, for instance, Just as Boaz was a redeemer for Ruth, Jesus is our redeemer from the results of sin and Satan. And I don't know about you, but that's the sort of thing that can bring tears to one's eyes because this is not based on emotion. It's based on a very intellectual acceptance on the part of one of the persons of the Godhead. In fact, all three persons of the Godhead because Jesus said to his father, behold, a body you have prepared for me. And he came down and became one of us and became our redeemer. We find, for instance, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, that he came to redeem them that were under the law. You know what it means to be under the law? Do you? Have you ever been under the law? We all are. When you see that little blue light behind you, you're under the law, right? You get in trouble with the law, seems like there's a lot of things we can get into trouble under and be under the law for. We are all born under the law. Because Jesus died for us, we don't die. We go to sleep. And I've said this before. Do you know what the difference is between sleep and death? When you sleep, you wake up again. And because Jesus died for us, we don't die. We go to sleep. And yes, we will awaken. That's what Job said, Job 19. Titus, Paul writes, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. The idea of a redeemer to step in on behalf of his people 
who are suffering because of death comes all the way down from the time of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Ruth down to our day. We have another brother who has never succumbed to temptation but has succumbed to the results of sin. And he died on the cross for you and me. And I don't know where you stand on this, but I think it's the most exciting thing. He died once for all of us because he made us. He can do that. We read the word redeemed again in Galatians. He hath redeemed us. Us. That means me. From the curse of the law. I don't mind the law. I believe in the law. I'm driving down the freeway and, some, and I'm doing 80 because, and everybody's passing me. And some guy goes by me doing at least 100 miles an hour and I say, yeah, I believe in the law. That guy's driving dangerously. But I'm breaking the law too, right? Okay. We have all broken the law. We have all been born under the curse of the law. We all, without Jesus, can look forward to a final and eternal death. But don't worry. We've been redeemed if we want to be. And I think that's pretty exciting. And that's what gets me so excited every time I read the book of Ruth and I see how she was redeemed. Oh, there's so many. Talks about redemption in the Bible. Of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and Sanctification and redemption. This is one of the themes that we find in our Bibles. Actually, Leviticus 25, it's easy to remember. You've got Leviticus 25 talking about the redemption of property. And then Deuteronomy 25, the redemption of the wife of the man who died. That's pretty exciting. It's easy to remember. I like things that are easy to remember. And I could go on and on. There is so much in our New Testaments about Jesus, our Redeemer, and it's based on a very solid Old Testament and New Testament principle. Jesus has died for you and me. He has paid the price, and now he offers us life. And if that isn't pretty exciting, I don't know what else is. Just like Boaz did much greater than what Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi. And he's done it for you and me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, when we think of what you have done to redeem us, it takes my breath away. I'm just amazed at what you have done and your great love for us. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling.
and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.